Hello, uh, my name is AJ Lewis, and I will be having a conversation with Sandra Mezix for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. Uh, this is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Uh, it is January 14th, 2019, um, and this is being recorded at uh, St. Luke's School of Nursing in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Hi, Sandy. Hi, AJ. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for your time today. Um, can we uh, start? Can you just um, introduce yourself for the recorder? Um, you can share your gender pronouns if you want to, um, and we can start by talking about where you're from. Sure. Um, as, as you said, AJ, I'm Sandy Messix, and um, my gender pronouns are she, her, hers. And um, currently, I am director of St. Luke's School of Nursing. I'm a registered nurse as well as a certified nurse midwife. And I've been director of St. Luke's School of Nursing since 2004, so it's going on uh, almost 15 years. Uh, we start um, by just, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what growing up is like? Where are you from? I'm originally from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, growing up in this community back in the 1950s were, it was the, the boom of the steel industry. And uh, Bethlehem was, I think, the second largest steel manufacturing uh, company in the United States. And so we were very much a company town. Um, everybody was in one way or another affiliated with Bethlehem Steel, including my family. My father worked at the steel company um, and my uncles worked there and cousins worked there. Um, it was a noisy, dirty community at that time. Um, the, the, the skies were lit up orange at night with the blast furnaces and the sounds of steel being processed were, uh, it was, it was an endless cacophony and it smelled bad on, de on days when the uh, sulfur smell came out of the coke works plant nearby. So, but it was a vital bustling town. Um, but it was a steel town. Did you have siblings also? I have one older brother. He's eight years older than I am. He, uh, he's currently retired and living in uh, Florida. And uh, it was just the two of us and my mom and my dad. Um, in fact, my dad died when I was 11 years old. Uh, we were out shoveling snow and he suffered a heart attack and died at age 45. And we just, uh, yesterday was the 55th anniversary of that event. Uh, my mother never remarried, and so um, it was my brother, my mother, and I, and uh, we continued on. Um, did you like growing up here? No. Um, <laughs> not particularly, because, you know, when you were a kid that kind of sensed that you were different, um, it wasn't exactly a place to be different. Um, it, you know, Bethlehem was not a very cosmopolitan town. Um, a lot of the, the folks were laborers, you know, and a, a good night out was going to the bar on your way home from the steel and having a drink or two, um, having dinner, and uh, that was pretty much life. So um, it wasn't a great place in some respects. In some respects, it was like growing up in, um, like in a, an Andy Hardy movie or a, uh, a, an episode of Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best. Um, it, it was that kind of atmosphere. What was your uh, sense of being different? Like, how would you describe that? I, th I think from, from about the time I was five years old, I sort of had a realization that um, I, I should have been born a girl. Um, and which was really funny because I grew up in um, a Roman Catholic family. 
And uh, for the first eight years, I went to a Roman Catholic school, and they were not big on sex education. And so, you know, I, I couldn't tell you the physical differences between boys and girls at that age, um, except that I knew that I was kind of slotted in the wrong way just by the external stuff, the way we cut our hair, the way we dressed. Um, but I, I couldn't tell you what the difference was in the genitalia of boys and girls at that age. And in fact, until some time later, because that information was just nowhere to be had when I was growing and up. Like, about what age would that have been? Uh, 1957, 1960, when I was about five to eight years old. You know, just no comprehension. Uh, you know, you, we had some vague idea of how babies were made, um, but um, the nitty gritty of it was pretty vague. And so, you know, I actually, I actually grew up thinking that at some point I would be able to make a decision. And, and I, I would say, okay, now it's my time to choose, and I'm going to choose being a girl. And, and as time progressed, it became obviously that wasn't going to be an option for me. And so um, that's when I started really getting kind of that incongruous tug. But um, yeah, you know, I, I missed that decision tree somewhere along the line and uh, kind of went down the wrong path. Did you have uh, friends when you were growing up who sort of uh, like shared experiences of feeling different or with whom you shared your own feelings? Cer certainly not in elementary school or um, junior high school. Um, during high school, eh, I, I, th I think I was probably clocked once for having shaved armpits and shaved legs um, at gym class or something, but I, I don't remember how I handled it. And every once in a while, I would wear clear nail polish or something, you know, just in a desperate attempt to express my, my femininity in some way. Um, and it didn't go unnoticed, but I kind of brushed it off. And so I never really had close friends that I confided in about that until years later. But uh, yeah, just the climate and the time, you have to remember, it was pre-Stonewall, um, pre-everything for that matter. And kids that were like overly effeminate or that you thought might have been gay or something, they had a rough time of it in high school. You know, they were the kids that were chased home and beaten up under the football stands. And so I, I learned at an early age that I wanted to avoid that. And so I tr tried to be, you know, the best boy I could. Was any of that an object for your family life at home? Um, well, you know, after after my father passed and then, uh, my brother was away at college and then into the military, so for the for the longest time it was my mother and myself and my maternal grandmother who occasionally lived with us, and um, I would I would cross dress around the house, and you know at, at one point it got kind of like I would do that in front of my mom and. Um, for a while, she kind of tolerated it, and then a lot of times she thought it was funny or cute, or and then it started bothering her as I got a little bit older. And um, she said, "I think I think we need to take you to the doctor and, and get this sorted out." And that scared the bejesus out of me because what we knew about going to the doctor for something like that in the 1950s and 1960s was you'd end up uh, like with electroconvulsive therapy or something to uh, stop that kind of behavior. And so I had a sensitivity that, you know, this was not a way I wanted to go at that point. Um, if, if I was going to get help for this, it would be on my own terms in my own time and not because my mother slept me off to the family doctor and we took it from there. So that kind of drove my, drove my behavior kind of underground from there on. And so probably about the time I was um, 
16 or 17 years old, I didn't do it in front of anybody anymore. And I asked, did you like get the idea to cross-dress from anywhere in particular, or is that something you kind of formulated on your own? You know, that's a really good question, AJ. I've often asked myself that because, you know, um, I, I think I formulated it on my own, and I think it was there was some time before I realized that other people did that. Um, and, and then when I did, it wasn't always very consoling because, you know, if, if you read about people who cross-dressed in those days, they were usually portrayed as pretty pathetic creatures. And so you sort of got lumped into a group that wasn't a desirable, you know, group to be lumped in with. Um, but uh, at first I thought I was the only one in the world, you know, and then eventually, I, you know, and, and. Keep in mind that at that time, you know, Christine Jorgensen, uh, I think, was making the news about the year I was born, 1952. But the the thinking in those days was that this is a very rare occurrence and this person is a celebrity because what she went through. And, and you know, I, I had no sense that there was a community of people struggling with the same issues. Very isolated, very isolated. And I think I didn't, I didn't realize that... Um, the community was was as big as it was until I was in my senior year of high school and my first year of college when I started reading um, the transsexual phenomenon by Harry Benjamin and um, the occasional magazine article that was out there in the popular press um, that I, I realized that this was a bigger thing and I was not all by myself. And that was like a really consoling thing to find out. Did you uh, seek out like uh, like uh, texts like the transsexual phenomenon? Absolutely, I scoured the newsstands um, in, in Bethlehem, and usually uh, uh, a very funny story is um, every Sunday morning, my mom and I would stop on our way home from church, and we'd stop at the local grocery store on the way home. She'd pack, pick up milk and groceries for the week, and there were newspapers and racks and racks of newspapers. You know, print media was in its heyday back in the early 60s. And so you had your, your respectable newspapers like uh, the New York Times and the local, sort of the Allentown Morning Hall or something like that. But down towards the end, there were these rags that were like the National Enquirer and the National Insider. And they would splash these fast, flashy stories with pictures on the front cover that said, I changed my sex and stuff like that. And I was attracted to that because it was information of some kind. And so I figured I figured out this way. And um, I think the statute of limitations is up on this. But I did figure out a way to um, fold those newspapers inside respectable newspapers get it through the uh, checkout line and remove them from the rest of the paper before my mom found out. And so that's how I, I learned about that. And, and interestingly enough, there was a publication at that time called the National Insider, and it had a regular column in, in the back of it that gave advice like um, Miss Abby or, 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 and it was called Both Sides of Love, and it was written by Hetty Jo Starr. And Hedy Joestar had been a circus performer and a burlesque person, but was also one of the very, in fact, I think the first American to, um, or, or the first, the first person to have um, sex reassignment surgery in the United States. And so she she made this little cottage industry, and she published a book called "I Changed My Sex" by Hedy Joestar, and that was like one of my first things that I was able to procure, and I must have read it 50 times and, you know, tried to find out 
were her experiences similar than mine? Where were they different? Were we, you know, was I like her? And, and that's how I started putting this information together. Um, and how long did you, uh, how long did, were you in Bethlehem for? Did you through high school? I, through high school. Um, I, I finished high school in 1969 at the age of 17. I started school like a year early, so I was like a year younger than most of my classmates. So I finished, I finished high school right after I turned 17. Um, <clears throat> and then I went to uh, Penn State University uh, the first time out, thinking that I would major in um, um, physics because I wanted to be an astronomer at that time and ended up not doing very well as a, a physics major and uh, almost failed out of school. And um, so I, I did change my major to psychology, surprise, surprise, as much to figure out things about myself as to, uh, I was actually, I actually had a very couple of good experiences with psych professors that really inspired me in the work they were doing. And, and some of them were like nationally known folks that I had the privilege of studying under and even doing some research as an undergraduate with. And um, so that, that was how I kind of changed course there. And remember, at the same time, staying in school was like pretty vital for me because the Vietnam War was going on. And for a while, you still got a, a deferment for, for being a college student. And so most of us tried to stay in school if we were in, enrolled in college. Um, what was your like social world like when you were in college? Um, I was, uh, well, my social world, that's, uh, um, my first couple of years I lived in the dorms. Um, and so kind of like restricted socially, but I actually, I, I blossomed there in that I got very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And so I, uh, I became a draft counselor for the, um, conscientious objectors. Uh, and they were, they were, it was the CCCO, Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors. They were sponsored by the Quakers. And uh, we learned to ferret out things in guys' medical histories that might make them disqualified for the draft. And so they taught us how to ask questions and then to counsel the person by saying, you know, well, you've described this, this rash that you get on an ongoing basis, you know, go get that checked out because you could get deferment based on that. And so I was, I was very involved in trying to keep people. I was uh, out of the draft and also I was very, um, very committed that the Vietnam War was an unjust war. We shouldn't have been involved in it. We were wasting lives of our young people. And uh, so that was part of a major thing that I did my first couple years in college. I also got very involved in the, the Daily Collegian, which is the daily newspaper that Penn State published. And I learned how to write. I learned how to write under a deadline. Um, they would send me out uh, to do feature stories. I would come back. I would compose them. They'd be typeset almost immediately and published the next day. So it, it kind of gave me a skill that, as it would turn out, was very useful to me later on. And so I, I, I kind of like, in hindsight, I think I was more of a journalism major than I ever was a psych major. Um, and so that I did that for three of my four college years. Um, and were you aware, uh, since you had finished uh, high school in 69, like, um, that being sort of the time of a lot of the occurrences around, like, gay and feminist activism, was that something that was sort of, like, on your horizon or part of your life? That's a really good question. Um, and, uh, you know, this is where my memory kind of fails me a little bit. I do remember hearing about the Stonewall riots, and I do remember hearing about the early gay, it was called gay liberation at first, the gay liberation movement. 
just the terming of the, uh, the word gay uh, occurred around that time. Um, uh, 1969 stands out because, you know, of course, that was Woodstock. And I didn't go to Woodstock that year because I was working a summer job. Um, so I, I was aware that there was an undercurrent of gay liberation starting. It was, But it was in the big city. Even though the big city was only 90 miles from here, it might as well have been another world for me. Um, you know, Bethlehem was still pretty provincial. And State College actually was a very conservative college town as, as they went. And so, yeah, yeah, it was there, um, but uh, socially, I was still pretty naive. I mean, I was I was a virgin, I think, until I was 19 years old. Um, and while I had dated women in, in high school, um, it never got too serious. And um, my 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 sexual um, development was kind of retarded, actually. Um, I, I didn't blossom until years later, so. Um, and was uh, trans, I mean, which is probably not the language that you were using to think about it at the time, um, like, was, did that continue to sort of be part of your life in any capacity, like, through college, either on your own or with other people in your life? It, it did. And um, as, you know, uh, after, after two years of living in a men's dormitory, the pressure was getting, like, making me crazy. Um, and uh, I knew that. Uh, I, I was hitting some kind of wall at that point. So my, my third year and fourth year of college, I moved into an apartment. My third year, I had a roommate who was a Vietnam vet. And uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of you know personal expression that I could do, but it was better than living in the dorms. Um, my senior year of college, I was, um, I was involved in a, with a young lady that I would eventually uh, marry for a short period of time. And that's when I started to express myself more fully. Um, that was the first time I ever went out uh, in campus as a woman. Um, and she was fully aware of it at the time. Um, you know, we were deeply in love as only you could be as in love with a person that first time. I mean, there's something special about that. Um, she was fully aware that I was struggling with these issues. Um, she helped me along, uh, teaching me some basic techniques of, you know, makeup and dress and things like that. We, we didn't know where this was going to go. And I was all that time trying to figure out is, is, am I ultimately, is my goal to change my body or will I be comfortable enough by just cross-dressing and expressing myself that way? And that was the big conundrum at that time, I think, in my life. <laughs> Um, I kind of digressed there, um, but my, my senior year, I was the first, first year of, uh, my senior year of college was the first time I came out to a friend. Um, and, uh, it was in the context of gender bending and which was becoming cool all of a sudden because you had Lou Reed who just came out with the album Transformer and you had David Bowie who had been doing it a while. And the first person I came out to was doing the same thing, although I think his motivation was entirely different than mine. But it was, I think, the first time I talked to somebody about it and was able to uh, kind of express what my feelings were. What did you say to him? I said, you know, <clears throat> um, I like I like to do the makeup thing and go out and dress. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why I like to do it, but and I'm not sure if, if it's just the dressing thing itself or whether, you know, I... I I, I want to have surgery. And then he just passed the joint back to me and said, that's cool. And it was, it was okay. So, I mean, you know, the world was slowly changing and this would have been in uh, about 1972, 1973. So um, 
I, I was starting to spend more and more time with Sandy um, and feeling very comfortable in it. What were your experiences uh, like initially you know, going out in public? Terrified. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. I mean, you know, um, even though I wore my hair long in college, I, I bought a wig just so I could look a little bit more different. Um, and so I, I would, you know, I would dress up as Sandy and I'd go out and I'd go to the library on campus. And, you know, Penn State's a big campus. I think even at that time there were 50,000 students. It was a large place. And so the, the likelihood that I'd run into somebody was pretty remote, but I still tried to disguise myself the best I could. Um, and, I, and I tried to do it at off times, you know, like odd times that, you know, there would be a gazillion people around. And, um, you know, it's like baby steps. And every time I presented as Sandy and didn't get negative feedback, I felt better and better and worked on things that were kind of causing problems. And so um, it was it was kind of like a learning process, but it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying at first. <clears throat> and um, funny thing is, many years later, at a cross-dressing party in um, Albany, New York, that I attended, one of the people there came up to me and said, did you go to Penn State? And I said, yep. And he said, were you at Penn State in 1972 or 1973? And I said, yep. Would you have been in the library reading a copy of Transsexualism and Sex Reassignment? That was me. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, I was gobsmacked because there walking by me was another, you know, individual that, that was in the trans community. And the pathetic thing is we passed like ships in the night and nothing was ever said until years later. So did you not know other people in college who were cross-dressing? I did not. And, and um, th this person had told me, you know, when we were discussing it, I said, yeah, I started, I started to present as Sandy then, and I started cross-dressing and going out. And I said, I, I came very close to seeking out help at the Student Counseling Center. And this person said to me, it's a good thing you didn't, because they would have probably found a way to expel you. Um. And were like uh, were, were books and, and periodicals and stuff like a source of information for you through college also? Yeah, when when, you, when you're when you're a student at a pretty good sized university, that that information pipeline kind of opened up a little bit more, and so there there still wasn't a lot, but there were some books and technical journals and things that I started to read, um, and and got a little bit more familiar. But things like um, like Virginia Prince's like uh, like transvesty like ever like cross your path or was that <clears throat> the kind of thing that you would have run into? I, I ran into transvesty a little bit later on, not not in my college years. So you know we we talked about um, we talked about uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, growing up. So I would come home from college, and I'd come home and work summer jobs and do something like that, and and I'd scour the local newsstands. And there was a place in downtown Bethlehem called Sherry's Newsstand, and uh, I know exactly where where it is. The building's been torn down many years ago, but he had the usual gamut of newspapers and periodicals. But in the back, towards the back of it, you know, you went from Playboy and Swank, and then all of a sudden, you know, there was Female Impersonator Magazine. And my eyes got like saucers. And, and honestly, AJ, I don't remember if I legitimately bought it or kind of tucked it under my shirt or whatever, because I think I was underage and he probably might not have sold it to me. Uh, 
at that time, but I, I en ended up leaving with it. And that sort of opened up the gates. And then I found out about other publications like Transvestia and things like that. And I, I'd be happy to t talk about Transvestia and my feelings about it uh, in a little bit if you want to pursue that. The female impersonators, I'm trying to remember, was that Haji Roberts' thing? Well, as it turned out, it was... It, Pudgy Robert was Pudgy Roberts was kind of like one of the faces of female impersonator, just as I was for a while, and Susie Collins was for a while. Um, it was it was published by a non-trans person by, by the name of Jack O'Brien, and um, I would end up working for Jack for many years. And um, Jack believed that you know in order to be successful, he had to have people in the community you know, writing about it. And, and so he, he found a succession of folks and Pudgy's a delightful person. I think Pudgy's still probably around. Um, Pudgy lived on the Lower East Side of New York and um, he was, uh, Pudgy was still around when I was working for Neptune Productions. And um, I remember visiting him a couple times and his place was just so decrepit and it was roach infested and like you, you probably didn't even want to put your stuff down there. But, but Pudgy had the funniest drag act you ever saw. I mean, he, he was a comic drag performer. I mean, you know, he was not beautiful by any sense of the imagination, although he could make himself up pretty well, but his, uh, his striptease act was just hysterical. Um, he'd peel off one layer after another and, and you know, snarky comments about, uh, you know, the chicken popping out and uh, it, it just, you know, the boobs, he'd take off his bra and the boobs would fall to his navel. And, um, and there, was a, there was a snarky remark for each one of these things and he loved to taunt the audience. He, he was definitely an enterprising, creative person. And I, and I think he's still alive as of this day. I, I hadn't heard that he had passed, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to. Is it okay if we move to sort of your time after college? I don't sure. want to rush through it. If, uh, Absolutely. Um, where did you end up after finishing school? Okay, so um, my my senior year of college, I, yeah, I was um, the, the discomfort was getting to the point where I needed to get some professional help. So in those days, you wrote to the Erickson Educational Foundation, and uh, you asked for some information. And so I thought, okay, I did this. And they sent me a referral for one provider in Pittsburgh and two providers in Pennsylvania that were familiar with uh, trans people and, and giving hormones and hooking you up with counseling. So it was, I wasn't going to go to Pittsburgh because I lived closer to Philadelphia. So out of the two folks, I picked this provider in South Philadelphia. Uh, may I ask, do you remember who you corresponded with at the EEF? I think it might have been Zelda Sibley. Was it? What was it, were your experiences just corresponding with them? Okay, with uh, they they were life saving to me. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think I had any negative experience with them. Um, they sent me a rash of publications. Um, you know, uh, uh, they they had all these like little pamphlet guides. You know that that ran from spirituality to hormones to uh, you, you name it. It was like the resource in those days. Uh, do you remember how you became aware of them? That's a good question. I think it may have been through either Harry Benjamin's book or the book Transsexualism and Sex Reassignment by John Money, and I'm blanking on the co-author of that book, but that was a more technical 
version, but um, I think it was through one of those two. They funded both of those, Mumlock Money and... Uh, Probably. I think EF is really interesting. I yeah, I mean, Reed Erickson, I never knew at the time. You know, what an interesting person. Yeah, interesting dude. I would have loved to have met Reed Erickson. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to um, distract us. Um, so you uh, found a, I'm sorry, you found the doctor in Pittsburgh or the other one? I went to Philadelphia. Went to Philadelphia. Only because I was, I was, I lived, Bethlehem is much closer to Philly than um, it is to Pittsburgh. And he was, a, he was just a, uh, he had a corner office. He was a general practitioner. He was a DO. Um, you get, you came in to his office, you sat, you gave your name to the receptionist. Turns out the receptionist was his wife. You sat in a chair and you waited till they called your name. And, and this would have been in the early seventies. Like this was in 1972 to be exact in the fall of 72. So I drove from Penn state, uh, down to see him and, uh, it was an informed consent model because this was the days before, you know, the standards of care. Um, may I ask what the, the doctor's name was? The doctor was Jack Carlin, K-A-R-L-I-N. He has since passed away. And he started uh, treating trans people because a local, one of his local patients came in and said, can you do this for me? And he took it on. And by the time I had seen him a couple years later, I think he was treating about 300 of us. And what kinds of uh, treatment was he offering specifically? Hormones. Yeah, he was, he was offering hormones. So you went in and it, his protocol was um, you got an injection every two weeks and then um, prescriptions for oral meds in between. So I figured out ways of getting between Penn State and there every couple of weeks for my shots and um, eventually moved to Philly after I graduated from colleges to be closer to healthcare in general and him in particular. And he was an awesome human being, a very compassionate, caring guy. Um, I think I think you paid $7 for an office visit in those days. Didn't take any insurance. I mean, there was no such thing. You know, so you went in and it was probably $5 for an office visit and $2 for the injection. And uh, he, he was the one who kind of saved my life. And it was an interesting thing. I went into hormone therapy saying this is either, either going to make me or break me because, um, you know, I could decide that I hate this. I hate the side effects or, you know, this, the, the thinking at the time was that if you gave female hormones to someone who didn't really need them, they would be so counterproductive that, you know, destroying the libido, et cetera, et cetera, that you'd come off of them. And that was sort of the test as to whether you were a true transsexual person. And so, you know, uh, within two weeks of taking hormones, I knew that this was it. This was, I, I can't describe the feeling of peace and contentment that started to go over me. Um, it was getting to the point where like it was interfering with my ability to do my coursework. And, um, you know, I, I started the hormones about six months before I graduated from college and they were the best six months of my whole college career. And so um, that, that's how I started hormones. And so after college, you know, moved to Philadelphia and then, well, uh, to, to back up just a tiny bit, I turned 21. Uh, a day later, I graduated from college and a week later I married. And so I married the girlfriend that I had been living with for the last couple of years. It was kind of a misguided attempt of independence. Um, you know, we still we still totally loved each other and we were kind of in this for the long haul. But, you know, you, you could see down at the end that this probably wasn't the best decision we had ever made in our lives. Um, 
So at any rate, uh, moved to Philadelphia, and then that's when um, I I got frustrated with how hard it was to get information about everything, everything we did. You know, getting information about hormones. The Erickson Foundation was really good about giving you some information, but you know, there weren't a lot of personal anecdotes. Um, finding out who the good surgeons were, finding out how you managed electrolysis or, or how you did makeup, what was the best makeup to cover a beard, all that kind of stuff. And so with all the hubris that can only come from somebody with a bachelor's degree in psychology, I decided to start a magazine and we called it Image. So it was me and my partner and another cross-dresser that I had met along the way who wanted to be a silent partner and provide some of the funding and distribution. And um, I would do the editorial and all the rest of it. Uh, and around what year would, uh, did you start that? I think we started that in 1973. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what, what, what you, what the content and image and what you ended up reporting on? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we focused mainly on the Philadelphia scene because that's where we were. So we, we covered drag artists. Um, the first issue had an interview with um, Divine and uh, Elizabeth Coffey. And uh, one of the cool things is that I reestablished content, uh, contact with Elizabeth a few years ago. She's still around. So um, we, we covered that, you know, the Pink Flamingos movie. They were on a publicity tour. We did that. We covered some music. We covered, uh, we, we did one, one fiction piece per issue and uh, some self-help stuff, like, the, like I mentioned, makeup tips, fashion tips, and things like that. I, I wanted Image to be kind of like a cross between Playboy and Cosmopolitan and for the trans individual. And so that was, that was the goal. And, uh, you know, it was a short-lived publication, but it launched a lot of other things for me. Why did you decide to call it Image? I don't know. It sounded like it. Yeah, and, and we, we named our publishing company, which was an, another unfortunate thing, but the company we formed was called Third World Communications. And why Third World? Because it has that connotation of, you know, um, underdeveloped countries, but we thought we were not the gay world and we weren't the straight world. We were kind of like the third world. And so that's, that's why we chose that. I mean, you know, what can I say? I was 21 years old. Um, and, you know, like I said, it, it took a lot of like stupid hubris to be able to do something like this. And really when you hadn't a clue, um, you know, and I'm writing about things that I just basically barely had a handle on, but it sort of started to get some traction. And we would send out um, we would send out free copies to people, and they would send us information. And that's when I I think I came to the attention of uh, Transsexual Action Organization. I made contact with uh, UTTS at the time, um, and that was really my intro to the to the whole female impersonator Neptune Productions thing. And that's kind of like when things really started to take off. In my ask, I want, I want to hear about Neptune Productions, but um, can you tell me a little bit about what the what the scene in Philadelphia was like. Philadelphia was a really gay friendly scene. Um, it was uh, there were there were a lot of drag clubs. You had um, hostesses uh, in some straight clubs that were trans women. For instance, uh, uh, Elizabeth Coffey, after after she did um, Pink Flamingos, she relocated to Philly. 
uh, we became friends, acquaintances, and uh, she was a bartender at a, at a local non-gay bar, but certainly a gay-friendly bar. Um, and of course, the big celebrity in Philadelphia in the early 70s was Rachel Harlow. Rachel Harlow was the contestant in the movie The Queen that won first prize. And Rachel, I think, was Richard Finocchio and uh, a Philadelphia legend. And Rachel was drop-dead gorgeous. Um, she, she looked like the young Grace Kelly. I mean, just simply beautiful. But she gained such notoriety in Philadelphia that she had her own club. Um, and so she traveled in some really high circles. And so Philadelphia was becoming kind of like a real embracing kind of place. Um, the bar scene was hopping. Um, they were, it was the very early years of trying to organize healthcare services. And so you had Radical Queens, which was the local group in Philly, and you had them uh, organizing uh, the Aeromin Center, which stood for Erotic Minorities, E-R-O-M-I-N, which I think is kind of the pre predecessor um, to the Mazzoni Center in, in Philadelphia. So that was an early community um, healthcare kind of organization. And so I had some peripheral involvement with Radical Queens and um, some peripheral involvement with uh, the Aramin Center. Um, and, and that's why I've always said that I, I didn't think of myself so much as a trans activist, although I guess some people have called me that, but I was more of a chronicler of those activities at the time, you know, because I was writing for these publications. And so I was always scratching around to find out what was going on. What was Radical Queens like? Radical Queens was, um, uh, they, they were kind of grass, they were like an in-your-face, genderqueer kind of group. And uh, I think the leader at the time, if not was, uh, if not the leader, definitely a prime mover, was Tommy Avacoli. And I think Tommy is still around on the West Coast somewhere and a very creative individual and, again, a very beautiful person. I mean, presenting male or female, it didn't matter. It was just beautiful. Um, and But it was very much very much in your face, very much confrontational like ACT UP was in the early days. And um, that kind of thing always did kind of make me a little bit uncomfortable. You know, I, I liked being visible, but I wasn't the in-your-face kind of person. And so, you know, we'd cover their events, but I wasn't a big organizer for them. You know, sense. This is something I've wondered about, of, like of, of sort of like the like participants or members in Radical Queens, like sort of what the demographic profile was like of folks who were involved with them. The, uh, young, for the most part, young. Um, a lot of a lot of the older queers, the queer culture was was very closeted, and so it was the younger ones, the like myself and other folks, that really didn't have anything to lose and didn't want to lead our lives in the closet. And so you had that tug. There was that, that tug going on. So the radical, they were, they were largely Caucasian, although there were some African-Americans in the group, but largely young Caucasian, kind of a mix of hippies and street people and some of us, you know, new college graduates. Um, I, I believe there were even some, like, returning Vietnam vets in those days as well. So, you know, it was that youth culture that was kind of blossoming at that time. All of us baby boomers. And were they all sort of like trans-feminine spectrum people? Or? Yeah, I wasn't, too, I wasn't too aware of the trans-masculine folks at that time, you know. So the, most of them were trans-feminine 
um, most mostly I, I would think gay expression rather than heterosexual expression for the most part. And and here here we go. So we were we were the young Turks, you know. We, we were the ones that like were right out there. And then you had Virginia Prince and the transvestite crowd, which I never was really comfortable with because they were like super closeted. Mm-hmm. At I the mean, time, you also weren't comfortable with them. No, no. Even when I first found out about them, it's like no, number one, they called themselves a sorority. And so when you were my generation coming out of college, fraternities and sororities were like, "Are you kidding me? This is like so 18th century." Very square. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like I would not belong to a fraternity or a sorority. Are you kidding? You know, and so that that was like their, but 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 their their structure was born of its time, and and I felt that by the nineteen seventies their time had passed, and I think their demographics were probably a little bit older. Um, certainly, their members were a little bit more affluent. They were a little bit more in the closet, and she was strictly heterosexual and don't pull any gay things at, at any of their meetings and stuff. And we, we just weren't buying that whole thing, you know. So I, I looked at it as kind of like even in those days, I kind of looked at it as you know, kind of a remnant of the past. That being said, you can't help but respect her for what she did. I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and she was uh, she paid a price, I think, for, for, for doing what she did. But we wanted to move it to the next level and open it up to everybody. And, you know, in those days we were trying to, you know, we didn't care if you cross-dressed because you got off on cross-dressing or whether you cross-dressed because you were, you know, going to have a, a sexual reassignment surgery. You know, we felt there was common ground. And so, you know, we were, we were kind of like a movement of inclusion rather than exclusion. And did you find sort of in the circles you were in that there was a mix of those kinds of folks, both folks who sort of, you know, didn't want to transition, dressed up for whatever, you know, number of reasons, including sexual ones and also like trans women or. Yeah, there, there were. And, and um, a prime example was uh, UTTS, which was United Transvestite Transsexual Society. Um, and and I, I always laugh at the nomenclature we used in the days, you know, we, we just didn't have the good you know, vocabulary for it as we do today, you know, drag and female impersonator, you know, it's almost sounds negative anymore. But anyway, um, uh, Susie Collins head at UTTS and she was, uh, uh, again, a Vietnam War vet and uh, was a, uh, a heterosexual cross-dresser. I think that's how she would have kind of classified herself. But she and her wife would open up their homes to meetings once a month and they met in Point Pleasant, New Jersey which was not that very far from, you know, Philadelphia. I think it was like a two hour drive and it was going to the beach, you know? So um, I used to go to, to the parties and there you would meet like folks that were on in route to having surgery and you would have the cross dressers that just like to do it occasionally and everybody in between and their spouses sometimes. And so, um, that's kind of where I made some of the connections professionally that got me involved with Neptune Productions. Uh, because at that time, Susie was working for Neptune Productions and Neptune was helping them launch the UTTS at the time. And was that mainly like what UTTS was uh, involved in? Like they uh, ran publications and sort of had parties. Was Susie involved in other kinds of like stuff around UTTS? Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, it was mostly mostly the monthly parties and um, you know the publications, and it was it was trying. I think they were they were attempting to start chapters in various places using like the Virginia Prince model, but being a little bit more open about it. Um, and so uh, 
Susie, Susie was a, a wonderful person. She's passed on, but she couldn't write. I mean, you know, she just couldn't put sentences together to save her life. So the minute I started working for Neptune Productions, I was writing her column for her. And so I'd sit down with her and say, what do you want to talk about? And I would take notes and everything and do draft and give it to her. And, you know, it was it was hunky-dory. And so, you know, she used to have a column in Female Impersonator that was called Susie Says. And the joke around the office was it was Sandy Says, Susie Says. So um, I was I was ghostwriting already for her. Um, she, she was a wonderful idea person, a very creative individual who, who would think outside the box, but, but the, the execution of things, the step-by-step nitty-gritty was not her strong suit. So that, that kind of fell to the rest of us sometimes. I'll ask one more question about Philly, and then I'm going to ask you that. Sure. Um, did you um, like go out to bars, or it, were there like particular bars that like trans folks frequented or were like happening places yeah and I'm, I'm blanking on a lot of the names i think one was called the land of oz and one was called digits and i think my favorite was digits although the, the land of oz was there too i could probably go th- scratch through my archives and make a note of that and i'll see what i can find for you why did you like digits yeah, it's good music uh good looking crowd um you know friendly place and were they were they gay bars? Yes, they, they were gay discos, but they were um, straight people went too because you know I think straight people were starting to enjoy the vibe, you know, and, and it's when kind of being around gay people got to be cool, you know, that like Studio Fifty Four, I think, you know, was it gay? Was it straight? I don't know. Um, and they were they were fun places. The drinks were pretty watery, but uh, the music was really loud and good. And there were like usually these places were in multiple dance floors and there was a lot going on in the lights and the smoke and the drugs and not that I enjoy uh, well uh, <laughs> let's just say occasionally anyway but um it was that time yeah it was that time and it was it was a fun time actually you know that 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 little sweet spot between gay liberation and the beginning of the gay movement and um the HIV and the AIDS crisis you know it was that that heady time um, and we were all swept up in it, I think. Um, can you tell me um, how you got involved with Neptune Productions, including just like, can you just sort of describe what Neptune Productions was? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I have to laugh because it wasn't much. Um, you produced a lot of stuff out of there, though. Oh, tons of stuff. <laughs> tons of stuff. It makes my head spin to this day. Um, so, so at one of the UTTS meetings, uh, Susie said, I'm going to introduce you to Jack O'Brien and he's, he's the publisher of Neptune Productions. And, um, Jack was a cartoonist. And in fact, he, one of the cartoons that he produced, uh, was Sad Sack, which was a kind of a, if, if you're familiar with Beetle Bailey, it was kind of like a World War II, post-World War II area, era um, comic book about uh, just GI life. And uh, Jack was uh, not the original creator, but he was, I think, the second person that carried it on after the original creator passed away. And so Jack was a talented cartoonist. Um, he got involved, how he got involved in publishing gay and trans stuff. He, he had a partner, and the partner... I don't remember the name, but the partner got busted for doing gay porn in the in the late sixties. And um, if you make a note, I will try to find that name for you sometime because um, because that fellow was pretty famous for his photography. I 
think, in the gay community. Anyway, so so Jack and this partner pretty much lost everything. And then Jack eventually went back into businesses uh, just producing trans um, publications. Um, Jack reminded me of my Uncle Charlie. He was a little guy and quite compassionate, but very seldom sober. Uh, that man could drink. And so he, he met me at one of these parties and he knew that I had published Image. And he said, you know, this, this, is, this publication is a great idea, but it's a pretty shitty publication. You have no sense of layout. It looks pretty crude. And it's like, oh, yeah. He says, make you a deal. Come work for me. Um, you'll help us produce some of our publications. I'll help you produce yours. You can use any of my equipment and, you know, we, we can sort of arrive at this, this, um, understanding. And I liked Jack immediately and I was looking for a way to transition to full-time living and here it was. What, what had you been doing for work? <laughs> Everything and anything I possibly could. Uh, I came out of college at a really bad time for the economy. There wasn't much I could do with a bachelor's degree in psychology. I ended up working in a gourmet cheese shop making sandwiches. Um, I had just enough men's clothes to go to work every day, pretty much, and that was it. The rest of the time, I was sandy. But uh, even in those days, that one-year pre-transition kind of uh, they used to call it the real life test was really important. And that's what I was striving to, to do. I was, I was actually at that time, I was already in the program at Pennsylvania hospital. They had a gender identity program. I was seeing a shrink. I was in the process of working my way towards surgery. And so all I was looking was for an opportunity to work full-time with Sandy and this presented itself because Jack didn't care what I wore. And had the Benjamin standards been implemented at that point? It's not exactly my area of expertise and no, I think those came around in the later 70s, but they, some of the Benjamin standards came out of the Johns Hopkins standards. And I think Hopkins had that requirement. And so, test, yeah. yeah, it was kind of like built on that. And that wouldn't satisfy the requirements if you were not, if you were on like out at work or not out at work, but you know, I mean, not living in the gender you were supposed to be living in. Yeah, it would have been inauthentic. I, I knew some I knew some friends that had kind of skirted that requirement, and even at that time, I knew that was not a good idea because they they suffered afterwards because of it. Their, their social transition was really hard, um, and so I was committed to doing that. And this was my way of, of um, actually making that big step, so to speak. So that's what I did, and and I started working for Neptune Productions, um, and that was in Belmar, New Jersey. Belmar, New Jersey. That's where their post office box was. Um, at various times, not to destroy any illusions about what Neptune was, but at various times we worked out of Jack's basement. We even worked out of his barn for a little while. We worked out of storefronts. Um, Jack was always like one check ahead of the landlord, although he did provide for a good living for his family, I will say that. And for me, I, he always paid his help. And I always, uh, I always got a check from Jack, but it was not... It was not lavish by any means. And in later years, we actually worked, um, his, his partner in the business was Betty Johnson. Uh, Betty was a woman that came out of the New York publishing scene and uh, somehow drifted to working with Jack. And the two of them were, uh, you know, they were business partners and they were um, romantic partners. Uh, Betty was not in a relationship at the time and Jack was loosely married, I think, at the time. And the two of them were like, 
little two peas in a pod. And so the three of us for the longest time were, were Neptune Productions. I lived in Betty's house for a while because the commute between Philly and there was so long I couldn't do it every day. So I either worked from home or, you know, at, at various times I would move into Betty's house and work you know, on publications all the time. Because like you said, there were a lot of publications. Now, <clears throat> what Jack did was he supplied publications for Star Distributors. And Star was a distribution company that put actually published the stuff, printed it, and distributed it, mostly to uh, adult bookstores. And Jack would go meet with Star about once a week, and Star would tell them what kind of products they want, wanted. And Jack would come back with an order to produce something else. And this kind of title, and that kind of title, and this fiction book, and that. And so um, it was up to us to kind of uh, produce that stuff. Jack would send me out to all the drag balls and all the events, and I would be, uh, I learned how to be a pretty decent photographer. So I would go out and take pictures, I'd write stories, uh, I'd write fiction. He'd give me a stack of illustrations or a set of pictures and say, write a book about this. And by the way, I need it by Friday. And so we were basically, I was paid by the hour to write porn. Um, you know, pretty tame by today's standards, but nonetheless, you know, and think about this. I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm writing this stuff and I'm 21, 22 years old and I've had probably three sexual partners in my whole life. So, I mean, not to destroy illusions, but it wasn't what uh, what you would think it was. So I, I had a good time doing it. Don't get me wrong. And I learned a lot. I learned the, the printing process, the pre-press process. I, you know, I built on my skills as a writer and, and uh, being able to take photographs. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And so because I was so involved in Neptune Productions, Image kind of suffered a little bit. And in fact, I remember one time I had an issue of Image ready to go, and Jack came to me and said, I need a publication. You got anything? And I said, well, I have Image. And he says, how about we just publish it as TV Times or something like that? And so made a couple of changes and off it went. So, you know, Image kind of fell by the wayside because I was able to reach so many more people and do so much more by working with Neptune Productions. Uh, I have the sense that I might be also in between asking you about like the, uh, the titles of periodicals you were working on and then not actually what you were doing to like report on them. Um, were there any particular like drag balls that you went to that were especially memorable or sticking? The, the, the best ones in Philadelphia were Henry David's and um, he, did, he did his uh, usually around Halloween. Um, and they were pretty pretty nice affairs at very uh, glitzy downtown Philadelphia hotels. And um, he was covered by the main press. And Henry is still around, and he's a great entrepreneur, and uh, I think he's a jeweler by trade. Uh, but he was like the cornerstone of that that scene in this Philly in the 70s. And he's, he continued to do the drag balls. I think even to this day, they do an annual one. Um, he calls them Halloween costume balls and, and things, but th that was always a good one. Um, Lee Brewster uh, out of New York did some, some, I caught the tail end of hers. Uh, and, and then there were all these other ones. I remember going to Newark for one. I remember going to Long Island. So there were these things that we found out about, and if we could cover it, we did. And you know, Usually I would go up, take a camera along and a notepad, try to get the names of the winners and take some pictures and try to remember who I took pictures of and, and come back and produce that stuff. And that's how we did it. Can you describe sort of what a typical uh, act would have been like? Um, 
sometimes they had categories. Um, and so you would have like uh, best female impersonator, best glamour, best comedy, best. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can't even remember some of the categories. Uh, at one time, Henry David was going to do a whole series of these. And at the end, the grand prize winner of. He was going to do a ball in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., somewhere else, maybe New York. And at the end, the grand prize winner would get an all-expense-paid sex change operation. I remember reading about it. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, unfortunately, Henry only had the Philadelphia ball, and then uh, the, the, the turnout wasn't all that great, and um, he received some death threats or something, so he canned the rest of the series. But um, So that, that was the kind of thing, you know. Um, those, those were fun. And, and, and actually, the, the cool thing was, in, I think it was in 1975, they sent me, I, I made acquaintance with Ariadne Kane, and she was uh, out of Boston doing the Outreach Institute. Is that Fantasia Fair? Yep. And so, you know, I, when I first met Ari, um, she was saying, I want to do this, I want to do this thing every year. And it's going to, she had a concept. It would be more than a day long. It would be like a real living experience where you could go to a place that would be friendly. Um, you could walk around outside dressed as however you want to. And we could do some seminars and we could do speakers and do this thing. What do you think? And I said, I'm all in. And so, excuse me, my role was to provide publicity and get the word out. And Ariadne did the rest of the work, and um, Fantasia Fair is still around. Um, and I was there to cover the first, the first one for Neptune Productions. And in turn, the funny thing was, uh, the local newspaper, which the Provincetown uh, Gazette or whatever it was at the time, used some of my photographs and we shared resources. They developed my film for me in exchange for giving interviews. And so, you know, even in the community, we got some coverage at that. And so it was kind of like a win-win all the way around. It was a fantastic experience. And I'm so gratified that it's still going on. I attended a couple of years ago and did a presentation of what it was like to be at the first Fantasia Fair. What did you like about the first Fantasia Fair? Um, Provincetown, to begin with, uh, in October. You know, so it was, you know, kind of heading in. It was chilly. I still remember that. It was cold. Uh, but crisp, and most of the tourists had gone, and all of a sudden this like little contingent of various kinds of cross-dressers, and for a lot of folks, it was the first time they had seen that many other people um, all in one setting, and so I kind of like that, but the best thing that I liked about Fantasia Fair was getting to know the locals, and so there were a couple female impersonators that worked the clubs around uh, Cape Cod and Provincetown. One was Bobby Ray, and he was hysterical. And Brandy Alexander, how many female impersonators were named Brandy Alexander? I don't know, but this one was really uh, a fun one. And um, a young fellow named Joey Poro, and uh, we kind of hung around behind the scenes because we were, we were still the younger demographic even in that group. And so we would hang out at pizza places late into night and swap techniques for doing great makeup and stuff like that. And I learned a lot from them. I created some friendships. They'd given me dresses and, and we, you know, just kind of exchanged a whole bunch of stuff. It was a lot of fun. And so even beyond the, the structure of the fair, it was getting to know some of the other folks and making those connections. That was just awesome. Um. And like those, were you like a stab? The folks traveled from all over the place.
place to go to Fantasia Fair. Is that right? Or was it mainly local? I think they traveled from all over the East Coast at first. I don't know how many came from the West Coast, but you you had folks coming from New York State and Philly and... Um, but but for the most part, I think over the years it grew to to attract like a larger crowd. But at the beginning, the nucleus came out of Boston and that group that was active there. And then, you know, we sort of got the word out the best we can. And I, I think I, I forget how many people attended the first one. It was maybe about 50, I'm saying, um, which was a, kind of a sizable amount in those days. So um, but I think uh, largely from the East Coast. And you and folks I continue to stay in touch after. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the folks I, I, I met there was actually, did you ever hear about the Casa Susanna photos? Uh, somebody, somebody went to a, a, a thrift shop and found this scrapbook full of pictures of cross-dressers that were taken at a place called Casa Susanna. And this apparently was in um, New York State, and it was a place that cross-dressers could go and hang out for weekends, and they, they went there and stuff. And so they actually published a book of this uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, it turns out that the f- person who took the pictures was Andrea Malik, and Andrea and I became friends. And I never knew she had taken these Casa Susanna pictures when I knew her. But uh, she passed away a few years ago, and in fact, you can see some, um, I think Dallas Denny did a video interview with her before she passed. Fantastic person, but she was a um, special effects camera person. And uh, when I went to see her at her house, I said, I pointed to this thing that she had on the wall, and I said, is that an Oscar? And sure enough, she had an Oscar on her wall, and it was for doing special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey. So in, in the credits of that movie, you will see uh, Johnny Malik. And uh, she, so she was one of the early people that I had made friendships with. with and um, I think she was active like in a Connecticut kind of scene and, and stuff like that. So um, I'd love to hear some more about it. Can you talk a, a little bit about some of the other titles coming out of Neptune Productions and your work on them and how they were maybe the same or different or whatever? Yeah, they, they you know, um, Jack tried to kind of pigeonhole some of the publications into like certain interests. So like, I think the first one was female impersonator magazine, which originally was about drag acts club 82. And, you know, you had the eight by 10 glossy pictures of the impersonators. And then eventually it became a little bit more pornographic, you know, and um, meeting the need of the times. Um, And then, you know, he would put out one, more for the transvestite crowd, and, and that might have been TV Times or Drag Scene or something like that. And then we would do one that was a little bit more gay. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the names of those were. Uh, do you know how he was making decisions about like what there was a market for? He was he was going to Star and the distributing company, and they would tell him what was moving and what wasn't. And so it was like really early market research. You know, they, he would go and they'd say, this stuff is selling as fast as we can produce it. Give us more. And, you know, um, or this, this is just kind of sitting there. And so, you know, that, that's how, how we kind of judged our decisions. And then lo and behold, one day they said, how about a newspaper? And that really blew all our minds that, you know, you want us to produce a newspaper? Are you kidding? With more frequency of publication. And they said, yeah, this is, you know, it'll be cheap. We'll make a lot of them and it'll get wide distribution. So that's, that's how female impersonator news got started. I, I would have, 
Who would have thought? I mean, I certainly didn't. Uh, can you describe a little bit what was in what female impersonator news was like? Well, yeah, uh, you know, all those all those publications at the back had mail order stuff, so that you could mail order any of our publications, and we swapped publications with Lee Brewster, and we sold each other's stuff, and you know, we we had really good friendly relations with with Lee and and her um, products, and then there was always a section of personal ads. And so, you know, in the pre-internet days, this is how people hooked up eventually. So, you know, you had a, you placed an ad in our publication, we screened, we collected the mail, we, we knew what post office box to send it to, and then any further communications was between the two individuals. So that was a real cottage industry. I mean, we were, we were charging like a dollar or something per item. And this, this was what we went out to lunch with, that kind of money. Um, so there was that. There was always uh, like a, a pictorial or two, um, and usually, you know, showing full nudity. Um, and in later years, a little bit of contact. Um, the, the laws were really precise and dicey in those days as to what we could show and what we couldn't. Um, and it was the it was the Supreme Court decision that you know pornography was defined as something that didn't have any redeeming social value. And so I, I like to joke that I was hired to provide the so, redeeming social value. And so that was the self-help articles. That was, uh, you know, relaying the latest research information to the layman. So there was always an article or two in there about, like, self-help kinds of things. Um, there were always letters to the editor. Um, and uh, I, spent, I spent a good part of every day responding to letters. I mean, we, we pledged ourselves if people wrote to us. We, we would write back, especially if they asked for something, or they asked for advice. And so, you know, um, we would publish some of the letters. Um, some of them I would just reply to personally. Um, and what kinds of things did readers ask about? Oh, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty out, obviously, in the publications. And, you know, um, they thought I was young and cute and how wonderful it must be that you're doing this wonderful transition and you can live as, as a woman and do all this great stuff. And I, I wish that I could do that. And I, you know, my wife doesn't understand or my spouse doesn't understand. And woe is me. And, you know, a little of that was okay. But after several years of that, I was really getting burned out. And, and people didn't know. I mean, what they knew about me was what they saw in the publications. It's like I could barely put two, I could barely make my car payment and pay for electrolysis. I mean, I, I was I was working hard, but I was not making a lot of money. I, you know, I was a salaried employee. And, and so there was the illusion of what this Sandy person was through the publications, but it bore no resemblance as to what my personal life was like. It certainly was not glamorous. And were the magazines themselves making much money? I think they did. You know, um, obviously, you know, Star probably took a very healthy cut. Um, and then Jack took a cut of that and then paid us from it. And, I, and, and you know, so Jack was able to support a family. And, you know, I think I was making like 4 or $5 an hour. And what was the deal with Star that they wanted to d distribute this particular kind of content? They, they had, um, Star was considered to be run by... Uh, certain Italian families in New York. And so they, they sort of had the distribution to their, their own bookstores, adult bookstores in Langa. Did they distribute for Lee also? Do you know? They, 
a lot of Lee's stuff was considered a little too tame for them. And, and so... Uh, okay, sorry and, about that. And interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, Jack would go in and meet with Star once, once a week or so and get his marching orders and what to produce and whatnot. But Jack never allowed me or Betty to go with him because he just said, you know, it wasn't the kind of place where you would take a woman. And so uh, I never got to meet the folks at Star. That was a big secret. What did you think about that? Jack Jack probably was protecting his own interests and probably didn't want me making a side deal with them or not. But I honestly do believe that he was he, he was kind of cavalier, you know, in, in that old-fashioned kind of masculine way that, you know, if he didn't think it was a safe place, he would come right out and say it. Um, so I think there was a, I think there were elements of both, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure it was a pretty seedy crowd that he was dealing with. Uh, and do you have a, a sense of what this, the scale of distribution and also what the readership was for all of these titles? Yeah. And I think my, my best guess is that it peaked out at about 10,000. Um, I think, I think for female impersonator news, the newspaper had the largest press run. Um, something like one of our other magazines probably typically sold maybe around 5,000 copies, you know, 5,000 to 8,000. Um, total readership, there's no way of knowing because you don't know who shared it with whom. Although in those days, there wasn't a lot of sharing, I would assume, but um, people did, did share publications at, you know, these parties and meetings and stuff. So <clears throat> we might have we might have hit 15,000 on a good day, but that's probably about it. And they distributed across the country. Yes. Yep. And we all, we also sold. Um, we we'd get some of our publications back. So part of the deal was you, you not only you produced it, got a check for producing it, but you got so many copies of it to sell yourself. And so that's that's what fueled our mail order business. Um, and you've been kind of speaking to some of this already, but as the um, uh, person hired to produce redeeming social content. Uh, <laughs> what, what were your thoughts about, like, what for you at that time where did you think was important for you to be uh, like reporting on and covering? Any event that involved trans people organizing, that was like priority. You know, um, there were groups going on in Seattle and on the West Coast, and we tried to plug in on that. We tried to keep kind of tabs on what the TAO was, the Transsexual Action Organization, was doing. Um, so that that was primary importance. To, to Jack, it was basically the pornographic content that sold the magazines. And so that was his focus. You know, to me, it was, you know, let's, let's help get the word out about events. Uh, let's talk about the surgeons that are doing good work. Let's talk about the ones that are the ones that you might want to stay away from. Um, kind of the, the scuttlebutt in the community. To me, that to me that was important. And were your, your like, sort of, uh, like, informants for scuttlebutt? Was that um, just, like, folks that you knew and folks you wrote in? And... Yeah, folks that would write in on a regular basis and, and occasionally phone calls, you know, because, again, pre-internet days, you know, and you actually paid more money for long-distance calls in those days outside of your area code. So communication was pretty much pen and paper even, you know, you know, it's hard to believe in this day. You know, we didn't even have access to copying machines in those days where you could run off things easily. Um, you know, it's almost trying to do this in the Stone Age uh, compared to what we have nowadays. And I've, so, I've always been very impressed when I look at 
periodicals from that, like activist and countercultural periodicals from that period, how much labor obviously went into them. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the, the cool thing about working for Neptune was actually we had a typesetting machine, we had camera facilities, um, I learned how to develop film, and we, we did a lot of it ourselves. And so I was, I was definitely the one, you know, producing the redeeming social value. I never, I never showed up nude in one of our magazines until after my surgery. And that was only on one occasion to help them out. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not particularly proud. Well, actually, in two, okay, two occasions, I'm doing the Monty Python here. No, no, three. No, twice, I think I, I appeared nude in their publications. And, you know, because I never considered myself a beauty of any way, but... Um, they, they, we were short of material, and so I took one for the team. Uh, about the, some of the activist groups you were in touch with, um, Seattle, was that Empathy Press? Empathy Press, yeah. What was, I, I know very little about what was going on. What was, like, what was the deal with Empathy Press? Like, who was um, it was published by um, Kathy Slavic, um, and a drag name... Uh, drug name for Charles Slavic. And he had started publishing, I think, in the late 60s, maybe. I don't know how they ever started, um, but we, we, we traded publications for them, and actually I wrote for them a little bit under a pseudonym so as not to cross boundaries. So if you ever see anything that's an empathy press publication written by Jan O'Sullivan, it's mine. And so, you know, I wrote a couple of books for them as well. Um, it was never anything more than like a long distance kind of correspondence. But uh, one of their, their, their person, their front person for a long time was Jessica Collins, Jesse Collins. And Jesse, Jesse was, um, I think I'll stop there about, about Jesse Collins because Jesse is still around and I don't want to, but, but that was, that was the Sandy version of Empathy Press, the, the person whose name was on the publications. And, you know, you can, you can, I think some of them were on the digital archives and you can look, look at that and see what I'm talking about. Um, they were, they did, they did some really nice work. I mean, their big thing was once a year they put out a catalog and I think it was uh, like all things trans, you know, and so page after page of contacts and all kinds of things. And that was really cool. And the rest of the time, it was mostly like fiction booklets and things like that. They were nice folks. And uh, they were they were no means on the scale of Lee Brewster in New York. And, you know, Lee, Lee and I, we produced Drag Magazine and other publications. And um, I had a lot of admiration for Lee Brewster. She was definitely a, uh, a role model. Did you know uh, Lee Brewster in person? Or yes. Yep. Lee was quite a Southern gentle, gentleman. And I use the word gentleman because Lee presented as a man most of the time. Lee liked to do high drag where, you know, you, you, you pulled out all the stops and, you know, the gowns and the sequins and everything. He, uh, Lee was not so much a day-to-day -day kind of cross-dresser. It didn't interest him. Um, Lee was gay. Um, and so uh, he had this great business on the west side of Manhattan and um, it was like a walk-up place but inside it was like a it was like a trans cornucopia of clothing and publications and you know just unbelievable business person he he had a great business sense that was the Mardi Gras boutique Mardi Gras boutique and then he had he, he branched off and he did drag magazine and then he did tours to um Mardi Gras every year. He would take groups there, and I went one year to cover it. 
Um, and uh, I think he, he tried doing a Provincetown thing at one point as well, uh, about the same time. And I don't think that ever took off. And then he did drag balls, and, but those stopped sort of like in the mid-70s, early 70s. And um, so, so Lee always had his finger on the pulse. He was uh, funding um, street transvestite action revolutionary star. And uh, he had an involvement in Queen's Liberation Front. Um, and he worked with B.B. Uh, Scarpi or B.B. Scarpentino and B.B. and I became friends. And so uh, they were the activist arm of what Lee Rooster was doing. Because Lee was a very quiet business kind of person. There were some rumors that he had been part of the FBI. I think, I think he may have been a federal worker at one point, um, but just, just an awesome person. But uh, Lee begged me, begged me, begged me not to have surgery. Uh, followed me out on the street in front of his boutique on 8th Avenue and said, don't do it, don't do it. And, and uh, that kind of unnerved me a little bit because when somebody you have a lot of respect for you tells you to do something that you're, you know, no, I'm committed to this. And, you know, but uh, we, we, we did not think very much of sex reassignment surgery, interestingly enough. Um, did you have contact with the street transvestite action revolutionary? No, that that's you know one of my big misses. They they were they were kind of fading. I think by the time I came onto the scene, BB was involved. Yes, BB was. Yep. Um, I'd love to hear about uh, Tau, a transsexual action organization. <laughs> well, I can tell you a little bit. Um, so I think I became involved with them in 1973. And um, probably about the time I published Image, and Angela Douglas uh, reached out to me and said, wow, you're doing this. Uh, why don't you become part of us? Um, you could be our Philadelphia chapter. I want you to go out and organize. And so, you know, this was kind of like when I started reaching out and, and meeting with the radical queens in, in Philly. And, you know, we never did get a Philadelphia chapter off the ground, unfortunately. And Angela would call me up every once in a while, usually collect, um, and would rant and, and would just go off on rants until the money ran out, you know, where I would try to cut her off. And, um, you know, and Angela was a very complicated person. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to put this as kindly as, as I can. And I think Angela was a vanguard for the trans movement. And she was out there before anybody else wanted to take on that kind of abuse. And she took a fair amount of abuse for it, too. But I think she paid a price in her mental health. And so, you know, I became kind of like I would dread the phone calls from Angela because, you know, she would rag on about being followed by the FBI and be careful about this person and don't trust Lee Brewster and don't do this. And, you know, um, and then eventually, eventually that that wrath turned on me. And uh, when, when I started working for Neptune Productions, that was pretty much the end of it. She, she thought that I was just using TAO to further my own purposes. I think I read like a spat in print in female impersonator interviews between you and her. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, 
I, I think I think I had had enough of the abuse. I mean, I was, you know, I I had expected from anybody else, but not within the trans community, and and so we we parted ways less than amicably, and and um, I, it it was nice, and I thank you very much for sharing um, Triple Jeopardy with me, and I and I realized that I got a mention in there a couple times, and uh, you know, I can tell you. I can tell you anyone reading, it wasn't true. I was not a plant for the FBI. In fact, probably because of my anti-war uh, activities in college, I probably have an FBI file somewhere. And uh, But but Angela really, uh, I, th I think she probably suffered from paranoid schizophrenia of some sort. And she, But she did do a lot of good work for the community. And I, th I think she threatened other people you know, I've corresponded with people that have also suffered at the hands of Angela Douglas as well. But, you know, she she decided to have surgery with um, John Ronald Brown. And um, she alluded to this in her book. And um, she had had a magazine done of her called, I think, Sex Change. And there were pictures of her before and after. And that was the big selling point of that magazine. And I felt so sorry for her when I saw that publication because uh, she had obviously been butchered um, afterwards and it was just hard to look at. I threw it away. I should have never thrown that publication away because of its historical value, but it just upset me so badly. I mean, nobody deserved that. Yeah, and that's unfortunately sort of what Brown was being accounted for. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was one of those people to avoid. Uh, I'm gonna ask you. I mean, I, I'm asking questions about Angela Douglas probably because she's such a complicated figure, and I know she's been someone I've been interested in for a long time. Um, that sort of, you know, despite that she was obviously kind of intractable and a rabble rouser. Um, I mean, what was there, what in particular sort of like drew you to sort of like to her political work, or made you want to get involved as like a, a Philadelphia contingent of the Transsexual Action Organization? Be, if you if you read what they were doing, they were getting um, they were getting a fair amount of attention uh, in the public press, and I thought <clears throat> I thought if that was handled well, that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing for the community to have the attention of the general public. I didn't always agree with their message, um, and it basically was just an attempt to you know be involved in trying to launch this movement that would you know create exception acceptance for trans individuals you know in, in the political context of that time i could have been arrested for walking down the street in philadelphia dressed as a woman if i was still male-bodied that's the kind of stuff that we were putting up with and they were willing to go out on a limb to to challenge this and so you know it was a scary thing at the time but i thought it was a worthwhile uh, thing to do at the time to try to organize against these these crazy ordinances and, and in Philadelphia in particular while I, earlier I said in our conversation that it was a pretty gay friendly town in election years it wasn't so much because we had a mayor named Frank Rizzo and uh, Frank was the police chief uh, before he was mayor of Philadelphia and every time he ran for mayor he would clean up the streets of Philly which usually meant busting the gay bars and so, you know, there was still an element of that going around at the time, you know, we were, we were starting the movement. And so TAO challenged a lot of that stuff. And I, you know, just I, I'm on board with that.
Did you have contact with any of the other people involved in it, either in Miami Beach or elsewhere? I didn't. I didn't. I, I knew of the people that, that Angela had talked about, but I never had separate contact with any of them. And years later, I actually moved to Miami, and, and uh, but I, by that time, Angela had moved on. So we, we never actually, never met Angela face-to-face. Um, and I interrupt my own flow just to make sure I'm touching on the things that I wanted to hit on. Sure. Um, and how long was Neptune Productions or Lamelle? Uh, into the eighties. Into right? the eighties. Yeah, I kind of. Um, I had my my surgical transition in nineteen seventy six, and uh, by that time I was starting to burn out a little bit. And um, I wanted to stretch my wings a little bit and kind of see how well I could do with just sort of blending into society in general and becoming invisible. And so um, I stopped working for them full-time probably around 1977 or thereabouts, but I still contributed as I could, you know, um, but not to the extent that I did before. And I contributed to Neptune probably into the 80s. Um, Jack O'Brien eventually passed away uh, in the late 70s, and then Betty Johnson continued uh, with Neptune for a few more years until she uh, got a little bit too feeble to be able to carry it on herself. So um, as it turned out, even though Star wasn't supposedly a, a safe place uh, for females to be, Betty uh, worked with Star to keep the thing going. So I think she was uh, she she was a wonderful individual, um, and uh, was personal friends with Truman Capote and um, Harper Lee. And so, how could you not love a person like that? You know, and, and the stories she would tell. But at any rate, she she kept the publications going, and in fact, she encouraged me to write a book, a biography, which you know I wish I had kept a copy of. But she started serializing it in a, one of the magazines I think they called Transsex. Grown, <laughs> another one of those magazines. So uh, a couple, one or two installments of it appeared, but I don't think we ever, um, and, and she claims, Betty claims that she ran the manuscript past Harper Lee, who basically said, don't do it. It doesn't have a market. And, you know, so if, if, if legend be true, that's what happened. I have no way of confirming or, or denying that. I think someday I would like to go through Harper Lee's papers just to see if there was any correspondence between her and Betty. Um, but at any rate, so uh, the, it continued in on the 80s. And even I, um, I moved on eventually and, and lived in Miami. But even into the 80s, I started writing for um, the Transsexual Voice, which was a publication out of Georgia. Um, and occasionally would uh, do something for Empathy Press even then. Or, and then I even wrote a couple pieces for Nugget, which was a men's magazine that had a large kind of kink fetish kind of... Uh, uh, focus and so a couple of my things appeared there too. So I, th- I think I finally finished writing in the genre probably in uh, the mid '80s, about the time that uh, the internet started to hit. And did you have also like social ties to like kink and fetish communities, or was that really just something you wrote? Well, you know, the Nep- Neptune produced some of that material as well, and, and so um, I, I did some shoots that that I took photos of of like. Um, 
D and D sessions, uh, bondage stuff, some some S and M stuff. Um, but it wasn't really. I was peripherally involved. You know, um, I found it very interesting and in some ways stimulating, but it was nothing I ever delved into uh, in detail. Um, but we, we even uh, we even put out a uh, Neptune was approached to do a, a publication f- for fat people attraction. Uh, I don't know what that is called exactly, but the name of the magazine I think is Fat is where it's at. And that was probably the hardest thing I had to write around erotic fiction involving that because it just, you know, personally didn't touch me in any way that I could, you know, and so that was a tough one for me. I could write, I could write trans porn until the, you know, sunset, but this was kind of a stretch for me and I was not very good at it. But we, we would produce anything Star wanted. I mean, you know, and um, but I, th- I think they had other folks doing more of the S&M kind of stuff than we did. We just kind of dabbled in it. Um, may I ask you, I mean, however much you feel like talking about it, um, about your uh, experiences accessing uh, surgery in the 70s? You said 74? 76. 76. 76. Um, sure. Uh, it, was, it was kind of an interesting time for gender reassignment surgery in general because um, the pioneers like uh, Johns Hopkins had just stopped doing them um, for bad reasons. They stopped doing it because of misleading information. And um, the work was being picked up by private uh, surgeons, more or less. So this whole shift was occurring. So it, <clears throat> in my um, early transition days, I was getting psychological counseling from a Pennsylvania hospital in Philly that had a gender identity program. They were also doing the surgeries at, Je- at Philadelphia Hospital. A team of uh, urologists and a plastic surgeon would do those. So I was going, I was going there and I was seeing a very excellent shrink. I mean, I owe my life to him. Uh, really, he taught me to think outside the box. He knew that I was pretty naive. Uh, he, he knew I was bright, but he also knew I was naive. So he would do things like say, how do you know you're not gay? Have you tried being gay? Why don't you do that? Why don't you explore that? You know, it's like, okay, if you think I should. Yes, I think you should. Uh, you think you know what being a woman is about. Why don't you go to a conscious raising group, which we had in those days, you know, uh, feminist group. Okay, so I did that. So he was always challenging me, you know, to, to be sure that I made the right decision. So I really do owe him a lot. Anyway, long story short, um, it's an interesting story. It's kind of, um, I was, got my surgery day, met the surgeons and had a bad feeling, just had a bad gut feeling about that visit. Uh, I thought they were very dismissive. I thought they were cold impersonal and I didn't get a warm feeling from them. A friend of mine had had surgery done by them and aesthetically okay, but they didn't really take great pains to to, to, to keep sensation. And so um, I was going into this two weeks down with a lot of trepidation, which I shouldn't have had. It should have been a glorious time for me, but you know. So anyway, uh, about 10 days before my surgery, I broke out in hives. The hives covered my body, covered my eyes. They took me to the emergency room, and it turned out I had hepatitis. Where I had gotten hepatitis, who knows? But as a result of the hepatitis, surgery was off the table for a year. And hormones were off the table for a year, which was awful, which just awful. So during that year, 
I continued working as best I could after I recovered for, for Neptune Productions. And, you know, it was a year without drinking drugs, hormones, no surgery inside. I was a pretty unhappy camper. Uh, it did test my resolve. But I was able to do enough asking around, and I found out about David Wesser, who was a plastic surgeon doing the surgery in uh, New York City. And he had an office at Park Avenue. Uh, he did surgeries at Yonkers Professional Hospital. And I consulted with him and found a person that was truly compassionate. He had um, just come out of the Air Force, I believe, and he was doing surgery on kids that were wounded by friendly and enemy fire and was an excellent plastic surgeon. And he didn't guarantee sensation, but he said, I work to preserve a clitoris and I'll do everything I can to do it. No guarantees. But and so I, I went with him and when my year was up and I started hormones again, I had surgery with David Wester and it was a good choice. And only the fates intervened uh, to, to give me the outcome that I eventually got. Because had I not gotten sick, I don't know. I would have probably gone through with it. And he, so he would have been one of the first and only folks like actually making an effort to preserve sensation. I think he was. I think he was one of the pioneers. You know, they 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 preserved a part of the spongy uh, corpus spongiosum tissue that had sensation, not as refined as it is now, uh, but I I was able to retain orgasmic ability and uh, the trade off, the trade off, and he was known for this, and in my case that was certainly the case was that you paid for it with lack of depth. And so if, if you were really one of those folks that, um, you know, you were committed to having a deep vagina, he probably wouldn't be your first choice. He, he chose not to do skin grafts for that reason. And so, um, and, and that was true in my case as well. So, you know, um, being the fact that I, I knew I was probably going to be lesbian post-surgery, uh, the deepness of my vagina was kind of a moot point to me uh, if I could be orgasmic. And so I made that choice myself. A friend of mine, coincidentally, at the same time, uh, who was heterosexually oriented, chose uh, Benito Rich, who was also uh, doing surgeries in New York at the time, and used big honking skin grafts, but she got a very nice deep vagina. I don't know about the sensation, uh, you know, uh, Rich and... and um, no, I, I, excuse me, it wasn't Rich, it was Granado, Dr. Francis... Francisco Granado. Um, but they all knew each other. And so I don't know if they traded techniques and stuff like that. So um, that, that's how we made our decisions. And, and again, that's why we did what we did was uh, to supplement word of mouth. Like who, who do you go to if you want a clitoris? Who do you go to if you, your focus was a deep vagina? Who, who gave the most aesthetic looks? Um, and that's what we did. Sounds like you had like fairly good experiences with medical care, maybe putting aside that bullet you dodged by hepatitis? I would say I did. I, I would say that um, key people in my life, uh, you know, my psychiatrist, my uh, hormone doctor, um, my surgeon, they were all uh, caring, compassionate, and confident um, for the most part, which is really funny because um, eventually uh Dr. Wesser lost his license to practice by doing something uh, with silicon or something like that and had some bad outcomes. My hormone doctor eventually lost his license to practice because uh, he didn't believe in paying income tax on, on things. And so the IRS got him. Um, so, you know, they, you had this, they were little rogue providers. You know, you took the good with the bad. But John Brown definitely 
lost his license over and over again. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And as well, he should have. Um, and, and interestingly enough, Dr. Wesser's attorney actually posted something posthumously about, um, yeah, he did lose his license, but the real reason he lost his license was because he was doing trans surgery. And, and, uh, and you know, I can point you to that website. It's pretty interesting reading. You know, he paid the price for doing what he did um, under the guise of malpractice. Uh, I might ask for you and um, others who you knew who were accessing surgery, what was, how they get paid for? Interesting question. Um, I was probably one of the last people that had it covered under private insurance um, because at that time there were so few of them done that it wasn't even on their horizon. They had no idea. And so um, I made an acquaintance when I started working and started my transitioning, and I asked a lot of pointed questions without asking the question. And, you know, pre-existing conditions, oh, yeah, after a year, okay, any surgeries excluded, oh, no, nothing, you know, it's like, okay, fine. And so um, it, it was uh, through Prudential. And I can say that because Prudential no longer writes medical insurance. So I had this Prudential plan and, you know, I, I had to pay the surgeon up front, but I was reimbursed for it. My friend who, on my recommendation, chose Prudential came a few months, say six months after I did, and they challenged hers because I guess, you know, myself and maybe some other people were starting to make claims about this. And they said, oh, no, we're not covering that. She successfully challenged, but it took her a while. Um, and so... Shortly after that, probably by the end of the 1976-77, it was an exclusion for many years. And so most of us accessed it by cash, and that was the case many years. Um, and do, by any chance, did you know anyone who got it covered by a Medicaid um, in the 70s? Never. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because I, I knew that uh, the like Medicare exclusion happened in like 80 or 81 or something, and I wasn't aware that private insurers were moving to exclude it earlier in the, in the late 70s. They were. Um, um, a few things I wanted to ask you about. Is there anything else that you, you would want to share about sort of experiences with the medical transition in the 1970s that we haven't touched on? You know, just, a, just an observation that I'm, um, I'm on a lot of Facebook groups, uh, trans-related Facebook groups, and one of them has to do with hormone care. And uh, you see an endless posts about, these are my lab values. What should I be shooting for? You know, is my is my E too high? Is my T too high? Is and so the the funny thing about it is in the day when I was getting hormones, there were no labs drawn to monitor your results. Um, there was there were no um, there were no testosterone suppression drugs given like there is now, like spironolactone or. Um, Basically, the doc hit you with as much estrogen and progesterone as your body could tolerate. And uh, you just kept going on that basis. And then, you know, if you were having symptoms, they backed off. But I mean, I was on ungodly amounts of hormones. I was taking an Ovid, which is an early birth control pill, um, 10 milligrams of estrogen. And then I was taking diethylstilbestrol on top of it. And then injections every two weeks. It was like unbelievable. So many, 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 many years later, uh, when I, I met the acquaintance of Christine McGinn, uh, a trans surgeon um, who was also doing hormone care, and this was probably about 10 years ago, 
you know, and I went to see her because I needed a new provider for hormones. And I figured, oh, who would know better than a trans woman who's a surgeon and a physician? And so she asked me the question about how my libido was. <laughs> and I said, what libido? <laughs> there is no libido. She says, you need testosterone. <laughs> so... Um, now I'm kind of plugged into the system where, uh, you know, I no longer see Dr. McGinn, but I thank her for that recommendation. And so I, I use a bioidentical cream that has a little bit of tea in it to just keep that, that level up a little bit. Um, but um, I, I could tell when I started getting tea again because, it, you know, it's amazing what it does to a person. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Tea really does fuel the sex drive and, um, you know, visual stimuli uh, that wouldn't stimulate you before all of a sudden become more stimulating. And it's, it's just a magical kinds of hormones are just magical. That's all I can say. Um, so but but at any rate, that my experiences was there was no such thing as lab values. You just went until you dropped or, you know. Um, and that's how they did it in those days. And, and we all compared notes and like, it was almost like who could take more, you know, um, was it, it was a different time. Um, I, I want to, uh, march us more into the eighties, um, before we go on for, for far too long. Um, but, um, I also wanted to ask a question that you'd mentioned, um, that I'm curious about, which is, um, you know, you'd said that, you know, before going into a uh, like surgery that you had basically already planned that you'd be like living as a lesbian and identifying as a lesbian. And I'm, I'm curious if you were like involved in lesbian community life, like in the seventies and what that was like. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so, so, um, after my surgery, my first, my first female partner after surgery was about two years after my surgery. For the first couple of years after surgery in the, in the mid late seventies, I tried dating men for a little bit and just, just to kind of like rule that out, and I did. Um, and so I, I met a woman, and we we ended up in a four year relationship. And so it was good; it was very good. She was more into the lesbian community than I was at that time. I was still very, very kind of touchy about being red, and I don't want to cause waves. But within our circle of friends, there were no questions asked um, about my. You know, being a part of the community, um, there was uh, you know we, we'd go out to we'd go out to the bars and we'd go to the concerts. I mean, the women's music in the seventies was amazing. You know, it was Meg Christian and uh, Chris Williamson and all those uh, artists. Uh, we'd go to all those concerts, and everything was hunky and dory until um, the Transsexual Empire got published by Janice Raymond. And the Michigan Women's uh, Music Festival barred trans women. And then it was like I kind of like retreated a little bit into that whole thing. Um, and so I, you know, um, I maintained friendships within the community, but uh, wasn't active in the lesbian community. Let's put it that way. Um, when I met my current partner, uh, my spouse now, uh, we, we met at a... Uh, met through uh, mutual friends, but our first date was at a women's center Halloween dance. And so I, I kind of like reintegrated, but by that time it was like the late 80s and a lot of this hysteria kind of blew over a little bit. Um, and so, but but I understand that that battle is still going on with turfs and, you know, what have you and legitimacy in the community. And it's like, I'm too old. I don't have time for that. You know, um, 
you either take me for what I am or, you know, we just part ways and that I'm, you know, I'm okay either way. I mean, <laughs> it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, and can you tell me, uh, if we move a little bit into the um, 80s, you described sort of getting burned out, you know, working for Neptune and maybe sort of, um, uh, say, but, you know, you know, just sort of like not having to like be professionally trans constantly and have this kind of public persona. Um, uh, yeah, so sort of like how did your life kind of progress moving into the 80s? Okay, AG, that's perfect. Professional trance. That's, that's you know, kind of like, yep, I, I had to move away from that. So at first it was dicey. Um, I, worked, I worked as a taxi cab driver at night. And during the daytime, I substitute taught in the Philadelphia school system. Um, I did that until I found a full-time job, and I used what I had learned at um, Neptune Productions to become a first uh, kind of like a layout artist and then a proofreader for uh, W.B. Saunders Publishing Company, which was a medical publishing company. And so I sort of found my way into the graphic arts uh, industry. And I did that. Um, I moved from W.B. Saunders to a small company called Waldman Graphics that... Um, produced uh, print material and they, they worked for the publishing companies, but they worked for many publishing companies and I moved my way up in that company. Um, at first I was a coder, so I wrote code just like HTML code, except for typesetting. Um, in the early days of computer typesetting, that's how we did it. And so I rode that, I rode that industry from Philadelphia and then got a job opportunity to do the same thing in Miami, Florida. So at that point I was single again. I felt there was a good time to make a life change Miami. I mean, who doesn't want to try Miami at some point in their life? So um, I went to Miami and worked for a small company called Burmy Graphics that um, wanted to expand into the book production business. And so I worked for them for many years. And so that was kind of like the 80s. And what was happening towards the end of the 80s was desktop publishing was coming out. And it was changing that whole industry where now the end user could produce print material basically without going through the typesetters and the graphic art companies. And I could see that change was coming. And I knew it was time that I, I needed to try something else. And so coincidentally at the late 80s at that time, the AIDS epidemic was hitting. And you know the gay and lesbian community in Miami was a pretty uh, strong community, a large community. And all of a sudden some of my gay male friends were ending up in the hospital and dying and so um, I asked my my spouse who was a registered nurse is a registered nurse and a nurse midwife at the time I said do you think I could make it as a nurse because I'd really like to be involved in some form of AIDS care and she said yeah why don't you go back to school and you know we'll, we'll figure it out so um, I went back to school got a nursing degree in 1992 um, Ironically, I never really gave direct AIDS care, but found my way into women's health care, uh, went back to school, got a master's degree in nurse midwifery in the late 90s, and went into a busy OBGYN practice giving uh, OBGYN care and delivering babies. Can I ask, um, could you like describe maybe a little bit more about what your experiences were like sort of watching um, the sort of, like, the sort of AIDS crisis kind of unfold around you that's would inform that decision to go into nursing yeah well you know i touched on the personal aspect of seeing people that i was friends with all of a sudden start to to wither away and die 
Um, and, you know, there was a lot of community mobilization because we couldn't get traction on the national level to, to investigate this. And there was so much misconception at first, you know, I mean, you know, can I hug a gay person? Will I get sick from hugging them? Can I kiss them on the cheeks? Um, if they stay at my house, do I have to boil their sheets? I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. This was the stuff we worried about in those days. And, and, you know, there was a lot of hysteria around it. And so one of the things that um, my spouse and I did was we were the founding members of the St. Stephen's AIDS ministry at the Episcopal Church that we attended. We had a large gay um, contingency, a lot, a lot of gay members of the church. And so we formed this group and our objective was to help fund things that AIDS patients needed to survive in those days. Um, and it could be simply as providing housing assistance. They were getting thrown out of apartments because they had this diagnosis. Um, so we would provide that. We would provide food when we had to. Um, we would provide transportation to medical care. You name it. It was all that kind of stuff that wasn't being, was falling through the cracks. And so that became my involvement in, in AIDS, what we called an AIDS ministry. And we raised a lot of money and helped a lot of people. And I'm proud to say that that group is still going many years after we left the group. It's, it's active to this day. And so um, we accomplished that. Um, but, but there was just so much, so much misinformation and hysteria. And, you know, we just, we just needed to do something. The first injection I ever gave to a patient as a nursing student was to an AIDS patient. Um, what did you do? Do you double glove? Do you triple glove? Do you wear a mask? Do you, you know, I mean, we, we just had no idea that the information wasn't there yet. And, and, you know, groups were trying to push them, the federal government for funding to, to research this and find cures. You know, now we're, we're kind of blasé about it anymore, but, um, you know, at the time it was terrifying. It was a terrifying epidemic. Well, I think you're old enough to know, you know, what it was like probably at the beginning. Were you um, connected to uh, trans people who were affected by the epidemic at the time? Uh, honestly, no. I knew they, they were, but I personally didn't know of anybody. Remember, again, uh, this, this was kind of like my pulling back. And, you know, while I was a member of the larger LGBT community, I was no longer seeking out trans communities by that time. So um, it, I, I would say no. Um, but, uh, can you tell us some more about what, what your experience is going into nursing was like? <laughs> yeah, nursing is an interesting profession. It's, uh, one of my colleagues said that it's the one profession where if you're a man, everybody assumes you're gay. And if you're a female, everybody assumes you're straight. And so I think we're kind of breaking that mold. Um, so I, I found nursing was probably the most rewarding and best career choice I ever made. And I'm not saying that to, to blow smoke. It really um, it helped me blossom personally. It helped me make a little bit of change. Um, and I think, I hope, you know, make others' lives a little bit better. It's the best thing I've ever done. <clears throat> um, I never shared that I was trans with any of the students that I went to school with. I never shared it with any of my instructors. What I did share at the time that was that I was lesbian and I had a, a female partner. And, you know, interestingly enough, in those days, it was okay to fess up to being lesbian, but being trans was still kind of like, you didn't do that, you know? I mean, that was still kind of the last taboo. So I never, never talked about that um, in, in my nursing school or with my classes or anything. Um, plus, plus, um, 
when when Sarah and I got together, uh, she had kids, and you know I was sensitive to kids being bullied and ridiculed. So it was bad enough that their mom had a female partner, spouse, uh, to throw the trans thing in there. On top of that, I never shared it with the kids until they were um, older. Um, why? What made you um, choose a midwifery and not a region? Well, for one thing, my my spouse is a, a nurse midwife, and so I was kind of fascinated with the scope of what she could do for patients. And the second thing that triggered it was, out of nursing school, I went to work in labor and delivery as a registered nurse in labor and delivery, and um, I got to work with families in labor and postpartum, and, and I saw the way they were receiving medical care from physicians. And I thought it could be done better. And I knew that the midwifery method was a little bit more of viewing labor and birth as a natural process rather than something that needed a lot of intervention. Um, you let it progress on its own. You kept an eye on it so that it was progressing normally and safely, but you didn't intervene necessarily, unnecessarily. And so I like that model of care. I got to spend a little bit more time with my patients than the docs could. Um, got to know them on a, on a different level. Uh, just delivered, I think, a better quality of care. I practiced with docs, so if there was an emergency, they were there within a half an hour. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of times they weren't necessary. I found it very rewarding. Um, midwifery to me was like uh, uh, hours of boredom interspersed with moments of terror. And uh, that's just the way it is. You know, labor progresses slowly, but then when things go wrong, they go wrong quickly. And so those moments of terror were real. Uh, you tell us a little bit more about um, your uh, professional life more recently. How long have you been at, at St. Luke's? I've been here for... Um, since 2001, so at this time, that's 18 years now, I came here originally, uh, we relocated back from Miami to take care of my, my mother, who, as it turned out, was in her terminal illness at the time. So while I said I would never return to Bethlehem, here I am, um, and we did that. And so uh, they had an opportunity of teaching in this nursing program, uh, teaching maternal newborn nursing, which was really up my alley. And um, while I was a pretty good midwife, I think I was a better teacher than I was a practitioner. So um, I came aboard here as a teacher and I taught for three years when the position of director came up. And so I interviewed for that. And for the past 14 years, I've been director of the school. And um, I, I truly, truly enjoy being involved in education as well as nursing. So it's a perfect fit for me. Yeah, and you do research also, is that right? I don't do so much research anymore. Um, most recent research, I was looking at a critical thinking tool to predict success in nursing students. So we were using a non-nursing kind of standard critical thinking tool, and we found out that it does correlate with success on uh, taking nursing boards and also succeeding in nursing programs. So that was one of my areas of research. I've published um, some continuing education uh, one of the courses is care of the transgender patient, and um, that's been very rewarding for me, and I'm going to present on that topic next in a couple months at a um, convention. Are you affiliated with WPATH? Yes, I am a member of WPATH, yep, and also a member of G, uh, GLMA, Gay Lesbian Medical Association as well. 
do you have like uh, holistic thoughts about the sort of this is maybe like sort of unwieldy a question to ask, but sort of about the sort of state of trans care when you were accessing it in the seventies versus now? I think we've come full circle in a way. Um, you know, back I, to informed consent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think uh, I think we started off as an informed consent model because you know there was no consensus as to how to treat trans patients, and so we started off with you know, and you know, informed consent. When you boil it down to it, is the person crazy or not? Are they able to make rational decisions, informed decisions? And that that was that's a model a model that a lot of medicine practices. You know, um, what are the strengths of this? What are the weaknesses of this course of action? What are the uh, the complications involved? And you make a choice based on all those things. Uh, WPATH got involved and it got very hierarchical. There's a lot of gatekeeping going on. Um, I'm I'm kind of a proponent of the informed consent model. And um, I think trans people are very competent to make their own decisions. That being said, you know, I do believe that counseling helps all of us, and especially at critical times in our lives when we're making hard decisions. So I would never say a person shouldn't have counseling. I think I think it's a good idea, you know, particularly if the counselor is a good one. I don't think they need to be gatekeepers. I, you know, just make sure that the individual has taught, thought things through. Um, so, you know, that part of it I would keep. The real life test, you know, I think, I think some years down the line that's going to be an anachronism because one of the cool things that's happening is that kids are discovering that gender is not binary. And that is amazing to an older person like myself. And I say, good for them. And so they are the ones that are changing the whole paradigm. And so really down the line, what is what is living one year as a member of the opposite gender going to be, you know, I mean, when we can all be gender fluid. Um, so kudos, kudos to you young people out there. You're, you know, carrying the torch very nicely. And so that, that's how I see it. Um, you know, um, obviously, you know, medicine really doesn't, you know, the first thing you do is no harm. And, and, but I think you can get carried away with that concept. Um, I want to be mindful of time, and I realize I've asked you a whole bunch of questions, especially about like from sort of the 1970s or the 80s. Um, uh, but I just want to make sure, is, um, since we've not treated the 90s or 2000s as much in depth, um, is there anything you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you about, especially in the, in the more recent years of your life? I think I think the I think the thing that I really find interesting is the trans wave that's happened in the last few years. It's staggering to someone who came up in the years that I did when, you know, growing up, you thought you were the only person in the world. And now you have Jazz Jennings on TV talking, you know, real life adventures of her own transition. I, th I think pre-pubertal uh, pre uh, suppression and being able to stop puberty to let kids make a decision. I mean, my God, I would have died for that opportunity as a kid. Um I'm, I'm just astounded by the wonderful changes that have happened in, in the 90s and 2000s. And I, and I know there's a backlash and I know the political climate right now is real sucky. And, and you know, I get that, too. But we have come and, you know, we're not going back. You know, Mara Kiesling, you know, she and I had a discussion uh, at one of the talks she gave afterwards. And, and, you know, we kind of both agreed, you know, once you open that Pandora's box, you can give us some nasty shit back but you know we're not going back into that closet anymore so I, I think that's it um just 
you know, if you had told me that um, I would be able to marry my same gender spouse in my lifetime at one time, I would have said you're crazy. We didn't see that coming until it gathered a tremendous amount of momentum. And so all those changes. I think I noticed when I was um, diligently Googling you that you popped up in the news around your marriage license. Is that correct? Yeah. Before it was legal in Pennsylvania? Well, it wasn't It wasn't strictly legal yet, but there was a just, uh, he was a recorder of wills or something in um, Montgomery County. And I had gotten wind of the fact that he felt that it was crazy that you couldn't get a marriage license. So he just independently started issuing marriage licenses. And so I, I told Sarah, you know, we really should do this just to make a political statement. You know, let's let's go down there. And, and so, you know, on a Friday, you know, we went down and uh, I was shaking going into that office. I didn't know what to expect, but the people there couldn't have been nicer. And so uh, there happened to be a reporter there. And they said, do you mind talking to the reporter? And we said, sure. Fine. So, you know, it's still out there, I guess, on the Internet. There's a picture of us and... Uh, you know, they, they talk about um, how we had been together for 25 years and, you know, how wonderful this is. Again, we didn't touch on the trans thing. Why, why muddy that? That's not what her objective was. And so anyway, I, th- I think we were about the 146th license that was issued or something like that. And then um, the attorney general of Pennsylvania decided not to uh, go after this and let it be. And so... You know, for, for months afterwards, we're going, are we really legal? Are we, should we see a lawyer to see if we're really legal? Are we legal? And and finally, after that, it just became a moot point. We have a marriage license. Uh, it's got a number on it. And so, you know, I guess we're legal. Not that it matters at all, but I mean, um, it, it was nice. So, yeah, we, we became, um, you know, one of the first safe gender couples in Pennsylvania to get a marriage license. <laughs> We had, we had been married in a church ceremony uh, several years prior, uh, but this, this was kind of the icing on the cake. Um, well, I mean, like I said, I, I, I want to be mindful of time. Um, don't let me wrap us up if there's a, a material we haven't touched on that I haven't asked you about yet. Um, let me ask, is there uh, like any particular aspect of your, your, your work and life that you'd especially like to be remembered for? Well, I, th- I think it's astounding that it came to the attention of somebody at the University of the Sciences in Pennsylvania that whatever body of work I've left behind justified an honorary doctorate. I, I'm still blown away by that, but that's going to be happening next month. Um, and, you know, they, they were aware of the work that I had done with, you know, Neptune Productions and... You know, and, and I said, do you really want to destroy the, uh, the reputation of your college by doing this? And they said, we're all about diversity, inclusivity, and we want you to help us push the envelope. And I said, I'm certainly experienced at pushing the envelope, so I can, I can do that. So, you know, I, I don't know what legacy to be um, noted for. Honestly, like I said earlier, I never considered myself one of the early trans activists more like a chronicler who happened to be trans. So, you know, I, I played a peripheral role and I knew some of those people, but really I, I thought my role, if anything, was to chronicle it and, and just, you know, write about it and take pictures of it and do whatever I could to, to get it out there in the days. And so maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for your time. This is really wonderful. 
my pleasure, AJ. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>